and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Future Classics. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me this fine evening, my two wonderful co-hosts, David Luzader. How are you doing this evening? Oh, I am. I'm just doing so great because of the movie we got to watch this week. I just have such complex feelings about it. Good complex feelings. I, we'll, we'll get into it. It's an interesting film, and you picked this film. But before we introduce the film, let's introduce our other wonderful co-host, Nicole Davis. How are you? Oh, well, I'm, I'm doing all right. But you know, you're looking so well, darling. You really are. I don't know what kind <laughs> of cream they're using down at the morgue, but I want some. Oh my God, Ray finds in this movie. Uh, and the movie is The Grand Budapest Hotel. came out in 2014. Before we give everybody a brief synopsis of what's happening in this movie, I do want to shout out next week's movie in the rotation, which is going to be Around the World. That's the opportunity for one of the co-hosts to bring an international film to the table. And it is Nicole's pick this week. So Nicole, Around the World, I believe this is the second time you've gotten Around the World. Uh, I believe so. Yes, my last pick was Bang Bang, the Bollywood uh, confection. And uh, David has been choosing a lot of South, Southeast, East Asian cinema uh, in his past choices. So I thought I would go a little more European this round. So um, we will be watching a tender coming-of-age story about a girl going off to veterinary school and joining her sister who's already there. Oh, and so no. it's sibling relationships and coming into her own as a woman oh, in no. a little French-Belgian cooperative film called Raw. Oh, no. <laughs> this has been on my David, list forever. Uh, I haven't, yes. yeah, this has been on my list forever, but I haven't pulled the trigger because of the content of this film. Just don't eat while you're watching it. Oh, <laughs> That's no. all I'm going to say. <laughs> all right. Well, we are going to be watching Raw. What year did that come out, Nicole? Uh, that came out in 2016 in Europe, but it wasn't released in the U.S. until 2017, I believe. For the record, I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> Huh, there's some apprehensive. I I don't understand what you guys are referring to, so I'm really oh. good. <laughs> Excellent. Don't this look anything up. Just just. Okay, I'll go in blind. I'll go, go in, blind in as blind as you can. Okay. All right. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm sorry, you might have already said, but what country in Europe is this coming from? Uh, it's made by a French company, but they shot it in Belgium. Mm -hmm. Okay, right on. Very good. Well, that is going to be the pick for Around the World. But this week, we are doing future classics. Uh, this is the week where one of the co-hosts gets to pick a film that's come out in the last decade. So it has to come out 2008, uh, moving forward, that they believe in the grand scheme of film moving forward in many, many, many years. Film schools and film scholars will look back on this film and think it's a classic. In the similar way we look at It's a Wonderful Life or die hard so <laughs> i don't know why i went there but sure uh so the I'm grand Budapest argue the die hard's a classic <laughs> yeah 2014 this story recounts the adventures of gustav h a legendary concierge at the famous european hotel between the wars and zero mustafa the lobby boy who becomes his most trusted friend 
The story involves the theft and recovery of a priceless Renaissance painting and the battle for an enormous family fortune, all against the backdrop of a suddenly and dramatically changing continent. So this is a Wes Anderson film, if that's not abundantly obvious from everything about this movie. Uh, Wes Anderson certainly has a visual staple, which I want to talk about in this episode, obviously, because this is the first time we've ever watched a Wes Anderson film together, uh, both combined with this show and Geek Cinema, which is somewhat surprising because he is such a well-received director in so many different circles, including Geek Circles. Almost all of his movies are in the Criterion Collection. This movie is not yet, but I imagine it will be before long. Oh, very. I, I think it certainly should be. That's actually one of my points is I think this is like his best movie. But we're, we're going to get into Armageddon's that. Armageddon's in the Criterion Collection. Of course this movie. Armageddon's in the Criterion? Criterion I can get the Criterion yeah. Collection version of Armageddon? Yes, yeah. there is. Oh my gosh. What is the Aerosmith song in that? I don't want to miss a thing. Don't want to miss a thing. Oh, yes, Liv Tyler. Okay, so David... The Grand Budapest Hotel, this is one of your favorites. But aside from being one of your favorites, why is it a future classic? Okay, so a little bit of it is my personal feelings on the film. I remember seeing this movie in the theaters and being so just taken with it. Um, Somebody near me when the movie ended remarked, it feels like I'm waking up from a dream, which was the perfect feeling for me when I saw this movie. It was just, there's this, the familiarity of the aesthetic of, of Wes Anderson and sort of the whimsy of it. And with, with the uh, sort of mirroring of, of real world events through this kind of interesting lens just gives this movie a very unique feel. It's got comedy and action, but also the right touch of heart to, to kind of balance it out. Uh, on top of that, I think that it is a wonderfully made movie. We're going to talk about Wes Anderson's use of framing quite a bit in his shots. And uh, I saw that Brett mentioned the symmetry in there. Yes, also important. Uh, but also something in my run-up to this that I, I knew about but didn't know the depths of is the way that this is a World War II movie. And... In a, in a lot of ways, it really is. And the, the reason that I think that this will be a future classic, I'm going to read uh, a bit from an article in The Atlantic um, that talks about this film and its connections to World War II. It's a, it's a beautiful uh, piece, if people want to look up the Grand Budapest Hotel, is a thoughtful comedy about tragedy. And the writer says... The film's use of comedy turns out to offer a fresh way to talk about the run-up to World War II and the communist era that followed. So much has already been said about these eras, and properly so. But with the passing of the generations of the eyewitnesses and the advent of new generations with their own sensibilities, how do we continue the conversation? The film succeeded at doing that through a comic lens, the very thing that initially troubled the author, but he talks about how he came around on it. And I think, yeah, this furthers the conversation that has been had a million times in movies in a really fresh new way. And that take is going to help carry it forward. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I'm glad you're bringing up the World War II themes because 
they're not something I particularly paid too much attention to in my previous viewings of the film, but coming into it with fresh eyes, having not seen it in a couple of years, I was picking that up all over the place this time around, um, especially when they start slapping you in the face with it, with the ZZ Nazis. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's talk a little bit about one of the central characters of this, because I know this is something both Nicole and myself would like to touch on. And it is Gustav H, the concierge played uh, by yes. Ray Fiennes. And oh my gosh, this is my favorite <laughs> role of his. It is yep. my favorite it is, it is exquisitely acted in the way he can immediately switch from being uh, like high fashion, right? Being highbrow and being very, uh, you know, articulate and, art, and artistic and um, exquisite. And then he can just immediately be like, oh, well, you know, F it. And it just like drops straight into, you know, um, like this perfect... Like, I don't even know how to describe it. There's a cynicism to everything that he does. Yeah, the cynicism and, like, the nihilistic quality of his character at times Mm -hmm. that is just so perfectly jumped between these two versions of his character is just beautifully performed by this man. Yeah, I I had a note here. Uh, The character of Monsieur Gustave is both utterly refined yet vulgar. His speech is (laughs) flowery. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. And so politely delivered, but splattered with profanity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is exactly what I'm getting at. It is refined yet entirely vulgar. And I think that Ray Fiennes does it masterfully. And, and you don't realize it's coming because when the movie introduces you to him, you're like, wow, this is really a refined character. And then there's that first break, you know, uh, in his character. And just, I love him in this movie. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that's just that beautiful introduction shot to him standing in the in on the balcony, uh, kind of in silhouette. Like we don't really get a full view of him, and this is kind of the you know some of that Wes Anderson framing that is uh, that's so great, where he's directly in the center of the shot, and he's just looking out over the world because they're on top of this mountain and he's just has this air about him and he turns around and next we see him in profile and you know perfect posture his his chin is churned up this is a man of class refined and then we see him kind comforting sort of on a date with uh tilda swinton in in hilarious old lady makeup some of the best old lady makeup out there they, that's yeah, actually one pretty amazing she it, looks she looks real damn old <laughs> it's one of the first it's one of the things that they were like we're not going to spare expense on this you know we're going to pay for the best people in the business to do this do this makeup for her and you know he's he's with her and he still has that you know i am the concierge i will do anything that you am your comfort i am your friend and as soon as she is driven away he you know turns to zero and it, the whole thing just changes he's just suddenly this whole other different human being now that she's gone just though yeah the way that he switches as we've all said the way that he switches all around from uh from high high speech to uh telling someone to go f themselves at the drop of a hat it never feels out of character for him and it always it's surprising. It always gets a laugh out of me at just about every other line of his. And what's really unique about it to me uh, is that early in the movie, 
it's it's shown that Gustav befriends lots of old ladies that come through the hotel. They're always rich. They're always blonde. They always have self-esteem issues. There's a whole checklist of things he goes through. And um, he comes off as like the, the male gold digger. But the interesting thing is, is when you start to learn more about his character, he seems to deeply care for all of these women simultaneously, which is a, a peculiar oddity in the way his character is written because it would be easy to write his character as just this concierge that takes advantage of old ladies. And yeah, maybe he kind of does, but he does seem to have this like appreciation of each of them in like his own weird way, if you know what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and it's clear he's not getting anything material out of it. You know, there's a shot of him in his little, uh, you know, t- almost a, a studio apartment, I suppose, a fancified room with a little kitchenette to it. And he owns nothing but a set of hairbrushes and a set of uh, volumes of romantic poetry. Mm-hmm. And that's all he's got to his name, that and his uniform. Yeah, and they they even mentioned at the end when he does become exceedingly wealthy that he doesn't who he is doesn't change much. Like, you know, you don't, you don't get the, of course we only see him in like these brief glimpses, but he just seems like, yeah, he, he always acted like he was high society and now he is high society and none of that absolutely has changed. And I want to read real quick, my favorite M Gustav lines (laughs) in this whole film. Uh, It is the scene where zero goes to visit him in the prison (laughs) for the first time. And he's like, what happened? What happened, my dear Zero? Was I beat the living shit out of a sniveling little runt called Pinky Bendisky, who had the gall to question my virility. Because if there's one thing we've learned from Penny Dreadfuls, it's that when you find yourself in a place like this, you must never be a candy ass. You've got to prove yourself from day one. You've got to win their respect. You should take a look at his ugly mug this morning. He's actually become a dear friend. Yes. <laughs> I hope you meet him one day. I hope you meet uh, him. <laughs> the way he says can't you must never be a candy ass. Yes. <laughs> it's just perfect. And it's just, it's all delivered the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Abs- absolutely. When he's talking about um Saoirse Ronan's character, he's talking about Agatha, I must say, I find the girl utterly delightful. She's flat as a board, enormous birthmark, the shape of Mexico over half her face, like <laughs> listing these negative things about her. But it's like, but at the end, she's exceedingly lovely. Absolutely, yeah. And I watch him, and I'm thinking about his incredible strengths as an actor to be able to switch from, like, the Voldemort of my youth to yeah. that. And I'm like, that's incredible. He is such a talented man. And he... Was he not nominated for an Oscar? I know he didn't win. No, he, no, was, he was nominated not. for Golden Globe for this. But yeah. not this should Oscar. have been at the very least a Best Supporting Actor nomination, in my opinion. Yeah, well, Best Supporting Actor that year. Let's see. I have it right here, in fact, because I was so shocked that he wasn't nominated for a damn thing. And this movie uh, was nominated for, like, it was nominated for Academy Awards. Bunch yeah. of things. But yeah. no acting. Um, no, uh, the best supporting actor awards that year were uh, the nominations were Robert Duvall in The Judge, Ethan Hawke in Boyhood, Edward Norton in Birdman, Mark Ruffalo in Foxcatcher, and J.K. Simmons in Whiplash. 
I'm pretty sure it went to Edward Norton. Did it? Did Whiplash? No, win? it went to J.K. Simmons. Oh, that's right. It went yeah. to J.K. Simmons. Because yeah. that's where he's like yeah. angrily, angrily yelling at a kid who just wants to play drums. Yeah. Oh, see, that's um, that's tough too. Because J.K. Simmons was so great in that movie. <laughs> and then Best Actor: uh, Steve Carroll in Foxcatcher, Bradley Cooper in American Sniper, Benedict Cumberbatch in The Imitation Game, Michael Keaton in Birdman, and Eddie Redmayne in The Theory of Everything. And that went to Redmayne, right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because okay. one of the jokes in the honest trailer for Jupiter Ascending is can, can we retroactively take away someone's Oscar? Oh, right. <laughs> oh God. Um, no, no. Max, that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Nicole wrote in our doc right here, Ray Fiennes was robbed, I want to recount. I mean, I th- believe it was David in our Slack earlier today made a comment was it that you said it's almost too refined of a performance like it's too it's too subtle is is what i said it didn't this movie watching it now i didn't really have an oscar moment uh where when you look at some of the great performances they all have the scene where viola davis not right exactly that actor takes over the scene you know it's uh the movie spotlight which is a great movie mark ruffalo was nominated for best actor or best supporting actor i can't remember and there is there's one scene where when he gets just really upset about what's happening and he monologues and he gets really angry about it (laughs) and everybody said like this feels really out of place in this movie and it's because like that's the moment that they were going to show and it is the moment they showed uh on the Oscars of like nominated mark ruffalo is this the moment where he's like my kids walk by that house every day Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that that, yeah, that doesn't, doesn't happen. Yeah. There's some really, I mean, beautiful little lines of his, but I don't think anything that shows, you know, because Oscars, and this was a concern actually that I've heard a lot of people bring up that Oscars was getting to the point of acting equals suffering. <laughs> and the more you suffer for a role, the more you've acted, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio eating a bull liver. inside that bear. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like we are we're we're rewarding people more for the intensity than the acting. That's I'm a very to think interesting of point. Last comic role I can remember that got nominated for an Oscar. I mean, the last one that I know of that won off the top of my head was uh Kevin Klein in a fish called Wanda. <laughs> which he was amazing in and completely yes, deserved. Was. Um, but yeah, they don't, you know, comedy tends to get short shrift except maybe in script writing, um, at the Mm. Oscars and, you know, comedy and horror and sci-fi tend to kind of get squished off to the side. Here comes Jordan Peele, uh, ready to (laughs) change that status quo, but no, you're absolutely right. And I think... To be fair, I really do believe the only acting of note in this movie, not the only acting of note, long form. I think there's a lot of great little performances. Uh, yes. Particularly by the mainstays of Wes Anderson, which I actually have a problem with, which we'll get to later. Um, but the guy who played, the kid who plays Zero is really bad. Um, what? He's really bad. Oh, and no. I think that no. that's the point of his charm. Claire pointed this out to me when we were watching the film, and he's a very bad actor. No, um, I disagree. You don't agree with me here? No. I think Tony I think Tony Revolori is great in this role. I really? think he does exactly what he's supposed to be doing. 
I think there's moments where he appears to have like bad acting when he's like, why do you want to work at the Grand Budapest? It's an institution. Well, we also learn like this is a kid who has gone through horrific things and he is learning to put on a face. He is trying. Why do you want a job here? Because they'll give me a roof over my head. But see, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how every line he says in the movie sounds like there was a guy standing off screen holding up a cue card for him to read it off of. Yeah, but a lot of Wes Anderson movies are like that. A lot of roles. No, that's are my that's my point. Is I think it is the tone. I think mannered. it is the tone that is intended, and I it comes off to me as bad acting. But I do think I will concede that I think it is the tone that Wes Anderson's trying to portray with this character. Well, then it's not bad because he's doing what the director wants him to do. But it's bad because I don't enjoy watching it. <laughs> For me well, personally, that's not bad acting though. That's a that's. That's bad. That's bad directing, really. If you want to put a fine point on it. No, no, that's fair. That's fair. And, and I don't that's like where this conversation's going. Well, as long as <laughs> as long as I'm getting ready to bag on Anderson, there's there's a couple things I have issues with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he, well, one thing I really wanted to bring up is the West Anderson mainstays. Um, they are always here. You have your Edward Norton. You have your Bill Murray. You have you know uh, Owen Wilson, and a lot of times they're cameos. Um, Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're the main characters. And to me, I was thinking a lot about this today. And I was thinking a lot of directors get very comfortable with certain performers. George Lucas loves Harrison Ford. Steven Spielberg loves Tom Hanks. Uh, what's his name? Loves. Uh, what's his butt? <laughs> no. Um, what's his name? The guy that made The Departed. Um, I'm blanking on it's Martin Scorsese. Yeah, Scorsese. Scorsese loves him some De Niro, right? Like these are people who pick very specific people to constantly be in their movies, and I get that. But my problem with Wes Anderson with this is that I find him constantly bringing the same people into roles to a point where I almost feel like I'm blurring between the different types of Edward Norton in his movies because they're all kind of the same, and. I feel like as an actor, not as an actor, as an artist, uh, and a very talented one, I really do think he's very talented. I think he is a disservice to him to continue to stay in a safe box. Uh, He seems like he's very comfortable with the people he works with, and as a result of that, he always works with those people, which makes him very comfortable, which makes him not as experimental and artistic as I think he could at times be if he'd be willing to not work with the same seven people over and over and over and over. And I would say exactly the same thing for every freaking Tom Hanks movie that Steven Spielberg puts out about a historical event. Like, <laughs> um, I, this is something I kind of have a problem with with him. And in this movie, it's better, I think, because Ray Fiennes is not necessarily one of his iconic mainstays and more, the mainstays that are here are more in cameo roles. But I do think it's problematic for him as an artist. Uh, see, I don't know. Because I, I, I think this movie, there is sort of some, some challenging of himself in some of the, the tone and in the way that some of the shots and scenes are composed. And I know you're saying this, this film is kind of maybe the exception. If we're talking about Wes Anderson as a whole... I mean, I have a very deep love as well for Moonrise Kingdom. I also have a deep love for coming-of-age stories, and that movie <laughs> yeah. is a giant coming-of-age story. That's true. Yeah, uh, totally. I, I, 
I mean, I, I, I get kind of where you're coming from, but I don't know if it necessarily, I, th- I mean, I think the reason that Wes Anderson has been as successful as Wes Anderson has been a little bit is that he does have a style. And I think that this, this movie and sort of in some other ways, he does kind of get to massage it and work it and try some different things at different times. But also you're seeing a Wes Anderson movie because you like what Wes Anderson does. And you want to see Wes Anderson do the Wes Anderson thing. No, that's yeah. fair. But I think, I think every artist that I think not every artist, I don't want to pigeonhole. I think a lot of artists, if you told them, I go and I see your stuff because I expect you to give me what you've previously given me. And I like that. A lot of artists would be like, mm, I should kind of throw you for a loop at some point. Like, and a lot of, a lot of artists do, um, or I should throw myself for a loop by not falling into that thing and actually you brought up what my other discussion topic was about Wes Anderson which is I think this is the movie you should watch if you're like me and you kind of get annoyed with his mainstays and you don't particularly like his style it's just not for me and the reason this movie works so well for me is because it is a little bit less whimsical than something like Moonrise Kingdom Um, it is uh, has more of a cohesive narrative arc for me than some of the other films I've seen of his. It makes more sense in my mind. And also, I feel like the... Um, I don't know how to describe it. I feel like it's not overly Wes Anderson-y. I don't, know how, I don't know how best to describe that. Like, there's not as many scenes of miniatures doing things as there are in other Wes Anderson I mean, movies. I, I, you know, I kind of get what you mean. You, know, you have the Royal Tenenbaums, which is about this family trying to come back together, and uh, the dad pulls, like, three or four different you know, gotchas on them. That's kind of a slice of life, like this family trying to get their stuff together leading up to this wedding. Uh, the uh, uh, Life Aquatic, you know, is is kind of about them trying to find this shark, but also zips off in like six different directions. This uh, kind of is, in a lot of ways, the most like cohesive. It's telling us one story from beginning to end. Uh, with the the Madame Duval, you know, just before her death, her dying, like everything is kind of wrapped around in like in what happens as a consequence of this woman dying. Yeah, and it's it's very cohesive because of that. I think, and I think that it's accessible. I think that's the word I'm trying to wrap around too, is that if you are thrown by the really high intensity, whimsical, colorfulness of something like Moonrise Kingdom, and I go back to that because that's very whimsical. Um, then this might be something more in your wheelhouse. Because I think that, and I've seen most Wes Anderson films. I haven't seen Isle of Dogs yet, and I haven't seen I Fantastic Mr. Either. Fox. Oh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. I haven't seen his two animated films. Um, but this is the one that I consistently really enjoy watching. It's the only one I, I own um, that's recent, in fact. And it's the only one I really care to go back to. Though I think Isle of Dogs might change that as well, because I, I love dogs. I, Isle of Dogs. Uh, so get you, it. you might you might i've i've seen it it's got a pretty straightforward cohesive narrative uh it's it's easy to follow it's simple it's got good it's got good dogs in it right it's got it's got it's got um maybe i don't want to get too bucks that's the other thing can I, can so I many- throw, as, as long as we're talking about isle dogs i'm just gonna throw this out there how about all these white people? Well, yeah, What's no, that's that's absolutely a well, valid. That's thing. Circle is white, and it is. You white. know, in, in this movie, where we're talking about, 
Europe at the height of World War II. Yeah. So th <laughs> this one, I mean, this one actually you can applaud because here's Tony Revolori front and center. Yeah. Who's like the first brown person I remember seeing in a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, and absolutely. Well, Danny Glover, I mean, brown person. Yeah. I was doing Danny Glover is in um, Royal Tenenbaums. Oh, is he? I haven't seen Royal Tenenbaums in a long time. Yeah, he's he's the he's the guy that Angelica Houston is going to marry. At the oh, end. okay, all right. Um, so, but I mean, I I really like him here, and again, that he's helping to bring in you know that the World War II themes you were talking about. You know, he's mm -hmm. talks about the desert uprising. So it's you know what what I'm inferring is that he's North African. And, you know, either the Italians are invaded or somebody else has, has come in, uh, sympathizers have come in. And so he and his, his family were shot and he was driven out and he came up to Eastern Europe to try to make a life for himself. And so he's just scratching that out now with his, his new job here at the Grand Budapest. You know, there's lots of deep stuff under the the very you know, elaborate miniatures of the Wes Anderson surface mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. I mean, this is his Wes Anderson's movies are always, I would say aggressively production designed. Yeah. <laughs> they are designed with an inch of their tiny little lives. You know, almost all long shots in his movies are miniatures of some kind, or they look like miniatures, even if they're not from the way that the, the focal length is done. Yeah. And it, it makes everything look teeny. Um, but it's bringing in these real world dark elements. They're like just kind of hiding under this comedic surface of this movie. Yeah. I, I kind of want to switch for a second in some of the ways that, the other ways that this movie kind of addresses some of the World War II stuff, um, the three there's 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 three populations in this film that get targeted by the you know the ZZ um, that are representatives of the th of three populations that were targeted by the Nazis. You have M. Gustav, who is the concierge who's openly bisexual, you know, when thousands of men were arrested after being condemned as homosexuals during the Nazi regime, uh, zero himself is a refugee. He's an immigrant. He's standing in for all the Roma and other non Aryan ethnic minorities that the Holocaust targeted. And of course, you know, you have the Jews who are represented by Jeff Goldblum, uh, playing, but by the way, I like Jeff Goldblum in this role quite a bit. He's not just being right. he's not just being Jeff Goldblum. I mean, it's a small role playing Deputy Kovacs. Uh, and God, that scene when his fingers get cut off gets yeah. me up every time. Yeah. Uh, and let's talk yeah. about who's cutting off his fingers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Willem, um, Willem Dafoe yes. looking so Green Goblin-y with his stormtrooper-y. Yeah, you know, my my kids were watching this with me, and my older son kept saying, "You know, where's he knew that Willem Dafoe was in this movie? <laughs> like, is that Willem Dafoe? Is that Willem Dafoe? You know, as new characters were introduced, I'm like, trust me, you won't be able. Yeah, you can't. Him you can't miss him in this movie. Did he just throw my cat out the window? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the way his cat. 
casually does that. I know. He's employed by another random, you know, Hollywood Oscar winning sensation that just happens to be in the movie, Adrian Brody. Um, I think, hold on, let me me pull up this number real quick. Uh, This movie has, I think, what is it? Four Academy Award winners and eight, yeah, four Academy Award winners, Adrian Brody, Tilda Swinton, Fisher Stevens, and F. Murray Abraham, and 12 wait, Oscar nominees. Wait, wait, what did, Wish, what did Fisher Stevens win an Oscar for? Uh, that is a wonderful question. I am not sure and am trying to look that up <laughs> Mr. Quick. Fake uh, Indian Dude from Short Circuit. What did he yes, win an Oscar Best Documentary for? Features, The Cove. He won an Oscar. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, yeah, he plays one of the concierges in the montage. Of yes, yeah, the chain oh, of the, also the the, 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 the crossed keys. Then twelve Oscar nominees with Bill Murray, Jude Law, Jeff Goldblum, Edward Norton, Owen Wilson, Harvey Keitel, Bob Balaban, Tom Wilkinson, Willem Dafoe, Saoirse Ronan, Ray Fiennes, and Lucas Hedges. Yeah, there's quite a pedigree. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it seems like when I look at his movies. It seems like I just see a ton of people that are willing to take a very small part, much smaller than they yep. normally would take, just to be in his movie. Oh, yeah. Yep. Lucas Hedges is on screen for, I think, about 20 seconds. Oh, yeah. Or like Bill Murray. Or Bill Murray or Owen Wilson. They're in this movie for literally about a minute each. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. And they I, all... They I, all- Nice little performances. I mean, you know, he's not, he's, it's not him wasting them and like somebody who walks by and you're like, oh, hey, I think that's Daniel Craig in that Stormtrooper outfit. <laughs> <laughs> they're given something to do in their quick little roles and they all do it well. Yeah, certainly. And I want to talk a bit about as well the, the, the aesthetic and the technicality of this movie uh nicole briefly alluded to some of this and it really is production designed within an inch of its little life nicole's correct um and the symmetry in his movies is really what always impresses me because the amount of time it must take to set up every single tiny little shot and seriously you watch this movie and like every shot has something in the middle of it and it's done to a point where he must have like random example uh ed norton stops the train searching for Gustav and Zero. He walks up to the train's platform, peers in, and sniffs. He is, his, the middle of his head is perfectly in line with the middle of the train car, which has a seam down the middle. And I'm thinking to myself, like, how many times did he make Ed Norton walk in front of this train car and do that before he was perfectly in the middle? And the entire movie's done like that. And I think to its benefit, and the reason it's even more effective, is because this movie, whenever it's taking place in the, in the 30s, and, and I think it's all in the 30s in the, in the most of the movie, um, it's in like 4.3. Like, it's not in widescreen. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think it's more noticeable that it's down the middle because you're basically watching a box. It is, it's amazing how the, the, the film doesn't ever feel crowded by that. Uh, it right, doesn't feel absolutely. like everything is condensed. I, I barely even noticed the aspect ratio. And I think it's, it's beautiful the way that they, they did that. Uh, I also love that this movie is, so we're watching a movie of a girl reading a book that's introduced by the author who's telling a story about when he was a young man who met somebody who tells him a story. 
So you got like almost some inception layers here of <laughs> the yes. different stories that were being told. Right. And they all, you know, the aspect ratio is slightly different. The color scheme is slightly different. The saturation is a little bit different for each level. And I mean, the amazing thing with the, with the, you know, the deepest level, the, um, you know, the story of, of Monsieur Gustave um, back in the thirties, when I noticed when there are these sort of deep emotional moments, the the corners of the frame kind of come into shadow, which you yeah, see a lot in have. very, very old movies sometimes. And it's just, you know, sort of a focusing of the lighting and it drawing your attention inward to the middle of the frame. You know, like when um, Zero is talking about how he had to leave the desert, you know, his, how he doesn't have any family because he had to leave when the and the soldiers came in and killed his family and had to leave. You know, so it's like him alone in the middle of the frame and suddenly the corners are all shadowed. So he's in this sort of this little bubble telling this story. And so these heavy yeah, emotional beats get even, even more emphasis using this little trick of cinematography here. And there's so, jumps I mean, between his like really saturated Wes Anderson-y colors and there's a black and white scene or two in the hair. Um, a lot of pastels. Like scene. Oh, Which one? That, the black and white scene at the end when just before uh, Gustav gets killed, which we never show. I realized in this no, viewing, they, they, keep, they keep the violence off screen. Yes. Which I, and there's some, there's some real violence in this movie that we never see. And I think that's, that's very interesting. Um, but I remember watching the movie for the first time and the movie turns to black and white when they're all on the train. And there's just this feeling in my gut that something bad is about to happen. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like there, there's not really a change in tone of the writing and the way that they're all acting with one another. It is just something is different. Something is more serious. Not because it's in black and white and just a little unsettling. And I, oh, it's, it's just so well done. Well, let's talk a little bit about the ending because uh, you actually put this in our docket. David, oh, I'm sorry, Nicole did, Nicole did. Uh, the feelings, no, the flying feelings bomb tossed out at the hand. Uh, Gustava, Gustav gets shot. Uh, Agatha and their baby die, but oh well, wasn't that a charming tale? And uh, <laughs> that is kind of how this movie approaches it, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's just sort of thrown out in passing. You know, Deuce Zero is, is telling the writer about how you know, eventually, uh, Monsieur Gustave did perform their wedding ceremony. And, but, you know, Agatha died a couple of years later, giving birth to their child. And, you know, Monsieur Gustave was shot, of course, I think he says. And just kind of in passing. He, he doesn't want to talk about Agatha. No, he, he never wants to talk about Agatha. Yeah, so he, he tries to avoid it until he absolutely can't tell the story he's telling without bringing her up. And so I think the reason, like, it, yeah, it's kind of just like tossed out there, like, well, you know, she eventually passed was because he didn't want, he had to like kind of give that wrap up to it, you know, which I, yeah. I, I like that they did, but he also didn't right. want to dwell on it. Oh, no, that's right. He said that, that he and the, she and the baby died of the, the grief. <laughs> An absurd yeah, disease that we now treat in a week, but yeah. right. 
and there is a beautiful little bit of foreshadowing um, when Zero is talking about the uh, the daisies that uh, Gustav gives um, gives Agatha, and he's talking. He talks about it's it's a, a they arrived in a box the size of a baby's coffin, which oh, is such right. just such a small detail, but it's so like how would you know what that's like right. unless that's very, a striking image in your mind? Yeah, it's a very precise term to use for a yeah. largish box of flowers. Right. Wow, I never that never clicked with me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and who is the actor playing? I'm sorry, you, you, told, you said it earlier, Nicole. Who's the actor playing the older Zero? F. Murray Abraham. That's F. Murray Abraham. Salieri. Yeah, his his performance as the... Uh, narrator throughout and his performance in uh, the 60s, which is, as, as Nicole said, the aesthetic is very different. It's like very toned down. It's kind of like darker colors. It's very... Yeah, lots of damp. oranges. Yeah, it's damp. If, if damp was a color, that's kind of how the Grand Poo Jude Law was there. In 1968. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, and his, his performance of the character is really quite excellent, I think, because... He he really portrays this like this stoic. Um, he's obviously deeply sad inside, but also like very content with where he is. Because we do learn at the end of the movie, like throughout the war, what Zero ends up giving up is everything that Gustav left him through this inheritance, with the exception of the Grand Budapest which he seems content with because that is the time at which he was happy with Agatha. And frankly, I wish we saw more of that. Like, I wish that I had. Did you say he didn't get the Grand Budapest? No, he did. It's the only thing he did. Yeah. No, 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 no. He got everything. No, he, he gave up everything except the hotel. as Right. The right. War. No, he had it. Well, he had it. He had everything for a long time, but eventually had to give it up. Right. right. That, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Um, but he chose to keep the Grand Budapest. Like, that's how the movie for Agatha. Spins it. And um and for Agatha. And I actually wish that like this movie showed us more of his relationship with Agatha because I don't feel like I get a lot of it and like when him and Agatha are getting like married, Claire's crying <laughs> and then when Agatha's dying, Claire's crying. And now granted Claire's is is one to cry at a at happy and sad things in movies. Uh bless her wonderful heart but i'm like why why are you crying like we've seen this character like twice <laughs> um but there's an emotional pull to this movie with those characters that i don't fully understand there's there were some people who said when this came out like oh her role is really underwritten and wes anderson you know is not really known arguably for some of having some of the best roles for women i think in this movie I don't want to say it gets it gets a pass necessarily, but I think it makes a little more sense in this because of the fact that he doesn't want to talk about her, that he's trying to avoid bringing up that part of his life um, and only says kind of what he has to about her. But I, I love Saoirse Ronan in this role. Uh, just I, It gets me every time when she's talking about the painting and how she doesn't want to be involved. She's like, I'm not a fence, if that's the proper term. <laughs> like, she is using this lingo. She's not quite sure if, if it's entirely right. Uh, I, I could have done with more of her in the movie as well, but the way that it's presented, I get why she's a little more on the fringes. 
And yeah, I think absolutely. You, do get, you do get that he cares so much. I, I get how we would feel a little bit connected to her because we see how connected our narrator is to her, our point of view character is to her. Right. Right. I mean, he's even touchy about Monsieur Gustav flirting with her, even though Monsieur Gustav flirts with everybody. With every, yeah, ev- literally everybody. <laughs> yes, living and dead. <laughs> yeah. Yes, living and dead. Yeah, I, I think for me, um, and we're coming around the time in the show about, you know, 50, 55 minutes in, where uh, we would touch on whether or not we really do think this is a future classic. And I think for me, what really makes this movie classic, I have to go back, is his character. The fact that uh, this is the definitive Ray finds for me. Um, and he's done a great many roles. And this, for me, is like his most exquisite performance, which that in part makes it a classic to me. And then going back to what I referenced earlier, I think this is Wes Anderson's best work. In my opinion, as someone who is not really a Wes Anderson fanboy, can kind of like step apart from it and be a devil's advocate, if not someone who just kind of dislikes his movies. And I think this movie's amazing. Um, so I think it's really some of his finest work. I'd be curious what your guys' thoughts are, particularly Nicole. She is, you know, the other one who did not pick this movie. Um, I would absolutely say that beyond a doubt, Ray Fine's performance is a classic performance. Comedy is hard. It is very hard. And he makes it look utterly effortless. And you think um, I've killed her. Yes. <laughs> and dashes off. And just the way he can, he can switch tracks so abruptly, you know, where he's like reassuring the old woman and telling her, you know, admittedly you're a little more anxious than usual. And oh my God, what has happened to your nails? You know, <laughs> yeah. What is this horrible varnish? And it's the color's all wrong. You know, and it's just, he just switches at the drop of that, very easily, you know, switches from this flowery, poetic language into, you know, dropping the F-bomb. And it's all delivered in the exact same tone of voice. And he's yeah. wonderful in it. I mean, the you know, the script, for the most part, is tremendously well-written. I don't know what... I'm I'm a little disappointed with Edward Norton's performance in this. Um, he just seems a little flat to me. Yeah, he's here. he's fine. He was kind of doing something okay. in he's kind of doing something in his first scene, but it didn't really go anywhere. It just kind of fell Hot off. Hot take here. Right. Uh, send me send me a message at at Movie Go Round Pod on Twitter. You can direct it at Brett. I think Edward Norton is just fine in pretty much anything Edward Norton has ever been in. Period. <laughs> I have never once been impressed by that man. But let us know if you disagree with me. Most people do. Yeah, but I mean, on the whole, I think this is extremely well-directed. It's obviously exquisitely well-crafted. Um, you know, and it just moves right along. The pacing is flawless, I think. I don't, I don't remember any part of this dragging. It's just bing, 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 bing. You know, it's, it, takes a little, it takes a minute to get started, you know, like you're on a train and it starts out a little slow. But once it gets going, you're just moving right along the whole time. And so, I mean, I, I think this movie is wonderful. I think 
I generally like Wes Anderson's movie. I would movies. I would like to see him bring more people of color into it. I think he needs to find more quirky people of color. They're out there, Wes. I promise you. Go look. Um, and you know, so yeah. I mean, th- I think this movie is tremendously well done, and I do think it will absolutely stand the test of time. That's one of the advantages of having a period piece, actually, is that (laughs) they actually tend to hold up better than movies that are made in contemporary time. And I just want to say, this movie is an hour and 40 minutes, so it's not even a two-hour time commitment if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's yeah, pretty it's definitely worth seeing. It is, you know, as Nicole said, this is a 99 minutes that snaps along very briskly. <laughs> um, it it really doesn't lag at any point. I will certainly give the movie that. And that's almost a Wes Anderson hallmark as a whole. He doesn't really make long movies, does he? No. Yeah, I'm looking at some of his other films, and they're all coming in around an hour and a half, maybe two hours. Right, right. Well, I think that this is probably one of the most unanimous future classic rulings I think we've ever had on the program. I think David mm-hmm. brought a pretty solid pick to the table. Yeah, he's had a good record so far with Inception in this one. So, I do oh my I God, yeah, you, yeah, you're having a good, you're having a pretty, pretty damn good record with this. Well, uh, we'd love to hear from everybody else. If you think it's a future classic, or if you don't, please let us know. There's been some banter on Twitter in the last week since we also put up. Uh, what did we recently put up as a future classic? Uh, Drive. Drive. Yes, there's been some banter on Twitter on at Movie Go Round Pod about whether or not that's a future classic. That one was a little bit more divisive than this one. Um, so uh, next week, only to you, buddy. No, wait, only to uh, David. That's right. only to me. Everybody <laughs> <laughs> yep. else was with me, but that's okay. <laughs> um, I was kind of in between you two, listening back on that episode. Yeah, yeah, I think that's yeah, where yeah. I was the whole time. But oh, uh, let's. Let's go around the table. Where can we find everybody else? Uh, Nicole Davis, where are you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at your word whiz, Y-O-U-R-W-O-R-D-W-H-I-Z, on Letterboxd at Nicole underscore Davis. And I take care of our Facebook page, and that's facebook.com slash podcast. Please feel free to message us there, and I will be happy to get back to you. Right on. What about you, David? Uh, you can find me around the internet under the username Davluz. That is D-A-V-L-U-Z. Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. Find me there, and uh, you will probably find out the other shows that I'm part of as well. Right on. My name is Brett Stewart. Find me on brettdavidstewart.com, on Twitter at RiversRuben. You can email the show, tilting, uh, sorry, movie go around at tiltingwindmillstudios.com. Rate us on iTunes and Stitcher if you enjoy the program. Let us know your thoughts. That way we can grow the listenership, grow this wonderful community, and have more of you to torture us every five weeks with a You Did This To Us, which is coming up you know, pretty soon. We're always, we're always right on the edge of that cliff, and you're ready to be there to push us you're ready to shove us over (laughs) that's right but until then we're going to be back next week with around the world watching the movie raw i'll do it for myself david and nicole we'll see you then 